Even this ancient atheist is aware of the fact that it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. But under certain circumstances, as you will learn this evening, they can be issued visas. Now, according to a recent report by Oxfam, over the past two years, the world's richest 1% have bagged nearly twice as much wealth as the rest of the world put together. Now, the same report predicts the the world's first trillionaire will uh, arrive within a decade, with the gap between rich and poor yawning ever wider. Now, you might have thought that uh, wealth inequality was um, a relatively modern thing. But my next guest, Guido Afani, has, uh, has published a wonderful book, an insightful book titled As Gods Among Men. And it traces the history of wealth inequality all the way back to the Middle Ages. The good Guido is Professor of Economic History at, and let me get this right, Bocconi University in Milan, and he's written widely on long-term inequality trends and the history of famines and plagues. And I'm delighted to welcome our very learned guest online from Italy. Guido, welcome to our little wireless program. First of all, what inspired you to write the book? Okay, well, thank you, Philip, first of all, and welcome, everybody. So, I wrote a book uh, about the rich in particular, about wealth inequality, but focusing in particular on the, on the richest part of the population. And uh, uh, the reason why I, I did this is that, well, you know, there are two reasons, basically. The first is somewhat technical, because... Uh, as you said, uh, I, have, uh, I have focused my research in the last 10 years and more uh, mostly on, uh, on reconstructing wealth inequality trends in the very long run from as early as we can measure it, which sometimes is from the beginning of the 14th century until today, basically. And, uh, and when we look at wealth inequality, um, we know, and this is something that comes very clearly from the data, that the general trend tends to be determined by what happens at the very top. So this means that if the wealth share of the one percenters or of the top five percent increases, then wealth inequality in general will also tend to increase. So, you know, there is this technical reason, and sometimes we know more about the richest than about the others. The other reason, however, is that at a certain point in my career, and almost by chance, I, I came to realize that uh, there was no proper social science book focusing on the rich, meaning that there are a lot of very nice biographies or you know, more scholarly studies of specific rich individuals in the past, but there was no systematic attempt at you know looking at across history, looking at who the rich were, how they came into their wealth, what was the position in society, and so forth and so on. And this kind of, you know, made me very curious to, to, to see whether something could be said about the rich defining them only based on their wealth. So without considering other features, without thinking about concepts like uh, social classes, which are more complex, co- complex concepts. I was only interested in looking at those who belong 
to the top of the wealth pyramid, whoever they were. And, you know, by asking the question in this way, I was also able to explore, for example, the composition of the rich across time. So, for example, see whether uh, in a certain historical period among the rich, we find more people who uh, have their wealth because they inherited it, maybe because they were nobles, or because they were brilliant merchants or entrepreneurs, or because they had made their wealth in finance. So, you know, the composition of the top is uh, is something you can explore only if you if you don't impose any other feature on your object of analysis. So the only interesting thing to me, I mean, the only parameter for me was who had wealth sufficient to be considered to be rich, and then those who were above this kind of threshold where, uh, uh, I mean, could be explored in meaningful ways. Guido, these days the, the rich live according to the, uh, the proposition, if you've got it, flaunt it. But back in the Middle Ages, that wasn't the case. The rich were required not to show their wealth. Exactly. Now, when we say the rich in this case, we refer to the commoners because the problem in the Middle Ages, uh, and also after, in a sense, never was with the, with the wealth of the nobility. So the nobility was considered to have a right, given how a perfect Christian society was supposed to have to be organized, so a right to their uh, uneven access to uh, economic resources. But the commoners, the, I mean, the commoners, you know, the question was why are they accumulating this wealth which they could use, for example, to help the poor, right? So the point is they weren't following the gospel, right, which was requiring, uh, was requiring to, uh, to donate, basically, as, uh, as Jesus said, uh, it, is, uh, uh, it is easier for a camel to get through the eye of the needle than uh, for, a, uh, for a rich to get uh, uh, to the kingdom of heaven, no? Uh, and so if you were a commoner and rich, by definition, you were a sin, and the sin was a, a, a terrible sin, a deadly sin. It was avarice or greed, of course. And I didn't, I didn't realize sin, that Dante placed hoarders and spenders together in the fourth circle of hell. Exactly, and this is exactly the point. Uh, I mean, either if you accumulate wealth or show your wealth by you know spending everything and by the way the sin there is also that you are ruining your your family basically you are committing a sin guido how did the rich strive for social acceptability so the rise especially in certain parts of europe like italy or the low countries of individuals with very large wealth was becoming too visible in a sense so the point is the presence of these very rich individuals was becoming so uh, so clear that uh, some sort of solution uh, had to be found. And then uh, you see that, this, that there is a change in how people were thinking about the wealthy, and they start being given a role, and this is clear by the 15th century, it's beginning a little bit earlier, and the role which is found for them, the first and a main role is to act as private reserves of, of money in which the community can tap in times of dire need, which means that if you have a crisis, 
for example, a war or a famine, the community, so the, the city, in the context of, say, medieval Italy, when you have all these communes and these small states, was able to ask the, the rich for loans, for example, was able to force them to provide loans if they weren't willing, was able to tax the rich and to collect resources to pay for the you know, immediate uh, needs determined by the crisis. You point out that in previous centuries, the rich also had another very significant role to perform acts of magnificence. Please explain what that means. Of course. And this is the second role given to the rich. Let me make uh, an example. There is, at the end of the 15th century, uh, a humanist called uh, Giovanni Pontano, humanist from, from Naples, who, who writes, in our age, Cosimo de' Medici was the first to uh, revive the ancient tradition of magnificence, and in this way, he converted his private wealth into a public benefit. So what is magnificence? Magnificence basically means to do great deeds. And which were the deeds done by Cosimo de' Medici at the beginning of the 15th century? Well, he was building uh, his own palaces, uh, which were visible, at least from the outside, to uh, everybody. So it was kind of improving the aesthetic quality of his city, which was Florence, of course. Uh, he was also founding institutions um, which uh, were for public benefit. Among other things, he established the first uh, public library in Europe, the Medici Library. And then, in a way, he was using his wealth in a way which was uh, uh, you know, pro producing a public benefit beyond the private benefit that uh, he was also uh, reaping from it. You also cite the example of Venice. Of course. If you, if you go to Venice and you sail along the, the Canal Grande today, you will enjoy these fantastic views because you have all these palaces established by uh, patrician families of Venice along the canal. And of course, why, they were, why were they doing that? Well, they were doing that because they needed to show to the other patricians of Venice their own wealth. So the fact that they were able to build a palace in that point was demonstrating that they belonged to a certain specific aristocratic group, okay? But this being said, you know, so, so they were doing this for their private interest, but this was also magnificent because we, centuries after, and whoever visited Venice back then and sailed along the Canal Grande was enjoying the presence of those palaces. So making the city magnificent because, I mean, it's something that you can, you can do also if you're building the palace for your own, right? Guido, many medieval thinkers became increasingly worried about the extremely wealthy individuals like Cosimo de' Medici getting involved in politics. Yes, and this is something that has always been uh, uh, troubling in the Middle Ages. So, um, there is, in particular, uh, um, a French philosopher and, and politician who, um, who I like, who basically translating and adapting Aristotle, so the 
Greek philosopher of the classical age to his own uh, period, says the, 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 the super rich would be so unequal compared to the others in, uh, in terms of their, uh, their access to resources and their political power that they would be in a city governed democratically as God is among men. So if the city is a democracy, is a, is a democracy, the cities should banish these people because otherwise it wouldn't be able to function as a democracy anymore. And this is where I, I, I come, this is where I, I, I take the title of my own book from. I only make the paraphrases as gods among men, why, you know, instead, Oresm, who, uh, this is called Nicolas Oresm, and, uh, and, uh, he, of course, was, uh, was, uh, was only using this other singular, as God is among men. Um, but the point here, is, is the following, the idea that if you have in the context of a democracy, however you define democracy, because of course, a democracy for uh, a 14th century uh, thinker is not the same as a modern democracy, but in general, the idea that in a democracy, if you have people with exceptional access to resources compared to the others, then you can no longer expect that the institutions will function as they are supposed to because somebody will have an even control over those institutions, it, again, is something that has always been there in Western culture, arguably from the classical period to the Middle Ages. And, you know, until, in fact, the beginning of the 21st century, when there was a lot of debate about, especially in certain countries like the United States, about whether the super-rich of the time... Uh, were acting uh, as a sort of money trust and or had already a control over the, the economy and the finance of the country and might, and this is what led to a lot of worries, might have tried to use that control over the economy to also get control over the politics of the country. So this is something which has always been troubling. Let me reintroduce you to the audience. This is LNL. On RN, and I'm talking to Guido Alfane, and his act of magnificence is his new book, As Gods Among Men, A History of, of the Rich in the West. Now, you recently published an opinion piece in the New York Times about the, the role of the super-rich in society today. Do you think our expectations of them have changed? I would say that... In part, they have, and in part, have remained exactly the same. Let me explain. We continue to kind of expect that during a crisis in particular, uh, the rich will be made to contribute more. And we can see this because in all the recent crises, from the Great Recession beginning 2008 to the sovereign debt crisis in Europe to uh, COVID-19 and then to a situation we again have in Europe with the Russian invasion of Ukraine, in all these situations, there have been calls for the rich to contribute more than others to pay for the bill of the crisis. So in terms of what we require of them, this hasn't changed. But they're they're exceptionally reluctant to help their communities in times of crisis. Yes. So our expectation hasn't changed much, but their behavior is entirely different. Uh, because this is uh, historically, and uh, you know, as going as far back as I as, as I can, actually, historically, 
this is really an exceptional period. We have experienced a, a long string of crises in the 21st century, and apparently none of these crises, the rich have been made to contribute more than the others. And, uh, and, the, and the question becomes, is this also, and probably it is, the consequence of their exceptional reluctance to help? Yes. But the other problem is, if they are reluctant, it's not like in the Middle Ages and in the early modern period, they were happy to, to contribute more. They, if they weren't willing, they were made to contribute more. So the point is also, why haven't they been made to contribute more? Guido, proposals for increasing taxes paid by the rich, who often pay no taxes at all, has gained, uh, well, has gained momentum, but not political consequences. In the US, we see uh, the Biden administration wanting to increase taxation for the richest, such as a, uh, a billionaire minimum income tax, but they fail to gain political support. Yes. And, and, this is, and this is key. Uh, so you asked me before what has changed, if something has changed in the way, in what we expect from the rich. What has changed is our uh, acceptance of the super rich in particular becoming involved in politics in the context of a democracy. And this is very clear if we compare the United States at the beginning of the 20th century with the United States and other European countries at the and some European countries at the beginning of the 21st century, okay? So this has changed. We uh, now look uh, often uh, at the super-rich uh, uh, almost as models, or not, or if not as a, as a kind of, of heroes, and when they decide to become involved in politics themselves, as uh, happened, for example, in Italy with uh, uh, Silvio Berlusconi, who is maybe the first uh, super-rich uh, uh, winning an election in, uh, uh, in the West, uh, in 1984. But when we, you know, I mean, the fact that this was possible reflects our greater tolerance of their direct political involvement. And then the problem is, is the fact that they haven't been made to contribute more during the crisis through taxation also the consequence of a, a greater control of politics today from the super-rich compared to the past? And of course, this is, I mean, I would leave this as a question, but I think that there is reason to, to suspect that the answer is, is positive, right? Warren Buffett came up with a sort of a, a buffer zone idea. He created that uh, giving pledge and uh, got the likes of Zuckerberg to, to sign up. And here's Bill Gates uh, promising to uh, give more than half of his wealth before he dies. Is this the modern version of the medieval act of magnificence? Magnificence, which again means doing great deeds, is not munificence, which means making gifts. So magnificence is not generosity, right? But this actually means that magnificence, the acts of magnificence, are also a claim to have a political right to rule. In some, in some ways. And we, this is what gets, gets lost, right? If we think instead of what today would be called giving or philanthropy, what we, what we miss, what we don't perceive anymore is the fact that this is not, you know, this is not always generosity. And there might be something which is received in exchange, but technically philanthropy 
I mean, if philanthropy is real philanthropy, there must be nothing received in exchange, not even unwillingly, right? So the point is whether we are confusing something which actually seems very close to be magnificence in the ancient term with generosity. And this is a big problem we have today. We look at the Elon Musks of the 21st century who uh, have exceptional exceptional ability to influence politics, very often for the worst. All the, the, the really super rich individuals who have, gone, who have become directly involved in politics, including people like Silvio Berlusconi in Italy and Donald Trump in, uh, in, uh, in the US, and now to some degree at least Elon Musk, all of these people have in particular a control over part of the media, right? So maybe this is also something that across time it's led us to become more tolerant of their, uh, more accepting of their uh, direct involvement in, in politics. But it's also something that should give us pause because, again, a democracy in the, in the ancient and in the modern meaning as well on principle would require that all citizens have the same access to institutions. But this is no longer the case if super rich individuals, in particular those who have control over important parts of the media, decide to try and influence politics on their own. They will not have equal access to institutions, whereas they will have a superior access to institutions, right? I like the advice you give to your readers to uh, brush up on classical mythology. Gods can also fall, and when they do, the impact is cataclysmic. Thank you for that, uh, Guido. I've been talking to Guido Elfane, who's a professor of economic history at uh, Bocconet University in Milan, and we highly recommend his new book, As Gods Among Men, A History of the Rich in the West, published by Princeton University Press. Thanks, Guido. Thank you, Philip, and thanks to everybody for listening. Coming up, how the super-rich have changed through history. And that's your lot for the week. Thanks to the team. And that's your lot for the week. Thanks, team. Uh, another great effort from E.P. Anna Whitfield, producers Catherine Zengera, Taryn Priadko, Ian Coombe, Claudette Werder and Julie Street. See you next week. Find more great ABC RN stories that take you beyond the headlines on the ABC Listen app.